Hi, you're listening to Talk Therapy, a pro mental health podcast hosted by me, Amy Gordon. Join us as personal and professional experts discuss important trends, issues, and considerations in the field. This show is intended for educational purposes and is not a substitute for therapeutic engagement with your own therapist. If you're struggling with mental health concerns, please reach out to a local professional for support. Thanks, and enjoy the show, y'all. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Talk Therapy. Today's episode is about harm reduction, and I'm joined today by Vivian High and Nathan Leach. Vivian, would you like to introduce yourself and say a little bit more about uh, your background and, and why you're here today? Thank you so much, Amy for uh, asking me to do this. I I really do appreciate it. My name is Vivian High. I came to New Mexico a very long time ago and uh, did a master's in counseling and have lived here for many years. And um, my background that's most relevant is that for about 10 years, I did counseling with people with disabilities and then uh, went to the Department of Health and became the HIV Prevention Program Manager. And in that role, the Harm Reduction Program, which was fairly new at the time, this was around 2000, I kind of inherited under the auspices of HIV prevention, the Harm Reduction Program. It was very new to me. I began to learn what harm reduction was about and how important it is in public health. And so for about the next eight years, I was involved primarily on an administrative level uh, in carrying out the harm reduction program in New Mexico. And during that time, we were able to get funding, which had been very scarce at the very beginning when I first got there and um, began to get more funding and the program expanded. And so I was very lucky, I think, and very happy to be part of that and to be able to make the bureaucracy work for a state-funded harm reduction program. I then went on and did some other things in behavioral health and then ended up retiring from the Department of Health. And uh, once I retired at the beginning of 2012, I volunteered with syringe services programs and then was eventually hired to work syringe services programs. Um, As I was more or less telling you before, that volunteering and then that work really completed my education about harm reduction in working with an injecting population because before it had been more administrative. And then I was lucky enough to have the one-on-one contact with people And the more I saw what was going on, I felt more and more strong about the importance of having these services people. So that's kind of the history. Yeah, you know a lot about the history. You're old school, huh? I'm old old and old school. (laughs) How about you, Nathan? Can you say a little bit about your background and why you're here, maybe? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I think what initially got me involved in harm reduction work was being somebody like in recovery. So I used to be an IV drug user. And when I finally started to like, I guess, 
like recover or whatever, or like be more involved in like recovery, however one would like to define that. One of the things that sort of emerged for me and like my group of friends around sort of like drug use and opioid use specifically, I mean, I really come from this sort of middle class, suburban sort of heroin addict that, you know, really emerged in like the early 2000s, which was predominantly white. And, um, and, I, and I, you know, I didn't think about drug use in any sort of like political way at all. Not until really, you know, one of my friends... I was talking about needle exchange and being like, oh, have you ever heard of needle exchange? Have you ever heard of a needle exchange program? And like this thing where like people don't require sobriety by people who use drugs, but rather approach them with dignity and help them like use drugs safely, try to reduce stigma. And like, I had like no idea about any of these programs. And it wasn't, yeah, so it was like in 2008, the first time I had even ever heard of a needle exchange before. And at the same time, like we're kind of talking about beginning of sort of the quote-unquote opioid crisis, which it hadn't been named yet, but there were people all around me in sort of abstinence-only 12-step programs who would quote-unquote like drop out and then like die. Like, you know, they'd go get high and they'd overdose, and this was happening a lot. And so like a group of my friends, we really just sort of decided that we would be really interested in starting a needle exchange. And this was in Maricopa County in 2010-ish which this is like sort of the heyday of like Joe Arpaio. He had actually previously threatened public health workers who had like a drop box for needles and people could pick, they would like schedule people. It was like sort of on the down low at the Arizona Department of Health. And so uh, we kind of walked into this political climate where it made our work sort of like politicized immediately because the notorious sheriff at the time had already like uh, condoned needle exchange and this sort of work. And so in 2011, me and like three other people established the first needle exchange in Maricopa County. There had been one existing in Tucson, Arizona. Still to this day, needle exchange is illegal in Arizona, but Tucson was able to create these relationships with law enforcement and public health workers and leaders to essentially decriminalize it without legislation. Um, and so those folks became allies. And really what evolved from there was it did become the largest needle exchange in Arizona. Things have sort of changed now, but when I left two and a half years ago, they distributed about a million syringes a year. Yeah, and, and so needle exchange kind of radicalized me in a lot of ways too. So that was kind of my introduction to that. And then I decided to go to school to get a master's in counseling. And I sort of focused on sort of like harm reduction and therapy. Um, I did my internship. I moved to New Mexico for the first time in 2016. And I did a, a year-long practicum and internship where I, I worked as an outreach worker, but I also did therapy, which I kind of saw as like sort of a harm reduction informed approach to like addiction treatment. And then I moved back to Arizona. Me and my partner had a baby. I moved back because my friend who helped me start the needle exchange started a nonprofit called Sonoran Prevention Works where I came on to do the countywide uh, overdose prevention coordinator. So I would do like overdose prevention trainings for some for the jail, like treatment centers, uh, any concerned group in Maricopa County. Uh, we would train them on overdose prevention, harm reduction, and then supply them with Narcan and do data collection with them. And then I moved back to New Mexico in 2018, just to come back as an outreach worker for the Needle Exchange. And then I started a PhD program at University of New Mexico this last fall, where I study basically the intersections of like drug use, opioid crisis, capitalism, and identity. And yeah, and so that's pretty much where I'm at. 
Yeah, also old school. Uh, I feel so honored to get to interview these two today. Uh, I've had the pleasure of getting to work with them for the past three and a half months or so, and um, none of us are <laughs> going to be working at the same place for very much longer, but it really has been a pleasure. I think, uh, like Nathan, I've been doing outreach in conjunction with doing um, harm reduction informed or harm reduction philosophy informed therapy. So it's been kind of cool to get to work with these two with the similar background in education. Um, once again, I'm Amy Gordon. I'm your host. I use she, her pronouns, and um, I think we'll continue with some of the questions. I'd love to know what you think the audience should know about harm reduction. Maybe the history of harm reduction, any aspects of the movement that are important. What are your thoughts? Perhaps Nathan can speak to that more directly than I can. But my thought about harm reduction is that it was and should be still a community-inspired program whereby people who do inject drugs, people who have been criminalized for use of a certain drug simply because it's illegal, um, that that has been a very important part of the whole history of harm reduction in the country. When Dave Purchase started one of the first in Tacoma, Washington, it was really very much inspired and driven by people who were using and what their needs were, what their needs were to be able to be as healthy as they could with their use and to be respected and empowered in working on and sharing what was part of harm reduction even in those early days. And Nathan expressed about his experience in Arizona, that community-driven individual and group thoughts about what is right and just for us should be very much a part of how harm reduction is and proceeds, I think, in the United States. And we've got other examples from other countries and that kind of thing, but that's my gut feeling that that part is so important. Yeah, community-based and client, if you want to use that term, client-driven. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's like huge, huge question. And I was thinking about these a little bit before our interview. And it, it's interesting to think, I mean, it's interesting to, for me to think about how I perceive the history of harm reduction. And I realized today when I was thinking about it, really when I think about the history of harm reduction, I think of like the history in the U.S. because sort of what we think of harm reduction like in, in this basic way, uh, which is sort of like a pragmatic evidence-based approach to substance use disorder or drug use. I mean, this, that has been, that was happening in Europe for a long time and it like wasn't really politicized. Like, I mean, I think it didn't, at least it doesn't seem to my knowledge to be as politicized as how harm reduction sort of emerged in the U.S. And that could be for a number of reasons. I mean, like, I think that like just the context of Europe in general tends to be a little more progressive, a little more socialist. But I sort of really mark the historical shift towards harm reduction during uh, like the HIV AIDS crisis, like organizations like ACT UP, current organizations like uh, Vocal NYC. And so for me, it's really this intersection of like 
stigmatized populations, particularly queer people, people who use drugs. That's historically where I see like the origins of the movement in the U.S. Um, in a lot of ways. And I think maybe more East Coast-ish a little bit because uh, Dave Purchase from Tacoma, like he had this like blue collar sort of thing going on. You know, he's he was kind of like had his biker friends in mind, which I think is fascinating and interesting and really good. And that work is really good. But to kind of ground harm reduction in like one sentiment, I think is to use the phrase like nothing about us without us, right? Like, and this like emerges from like disability justice, really the way in which decisions are made about populations without their consent, without their knowledge, and harm reduction in many ways tries to sort of mix that up by recentering those with the lived experience, those most impacted as the experts in this sort of situation that they're in. And so like, I really look towards movements that start from there, that are grassroots. And, and we've seen this also like in the 60s and 70s, the Young Lords and the Black Panthers, they occupied Lincoln Hospital, a wing in Lincoln Hospital, um, and negotiated funding from the hospital to start their own addiction treatment program. I mean, we're talking about real revolutionary action to meet people's needs who are struggling with drug use, you know? And, and these things are really inspiring to me. And, and, and when I started doing harm reduction work, this was before sort of the masses amounts of federal funding for overdose prevention is the majority of needle exchanges were either clandestinely funded or not funded at all. You know, like you, you had these large liberal cities that did have city and some county money and private money, everybody scrambling for Comer Foundation money or Age United money. And, and New Mexico is actually a really interesting example. If you heard Vivian say that, if she, I don't know if she knows the exact date, but we're talking statewide needle exchange in 2000, something like that. I mean, that's insane. There was no other place. We still know today that the only two state-funded programs in the country are Hawaii and, and New Mexico, and no other states have really taken that route. So New Mexico is this really interesting example, like historical example of like how harm reduction became sort of totally inundated into like the state politics, which is, is, is cool and fascinating, also has its drawbacks for a number of reasons. Um, but although that's good, it's not where I necessarily see my inspiration, nor where I want to point people when I'm thinking about harm reduction. I'm really thinking about these grassroots movements um, that really embody this idea of nothing about us without us. And my own personal experience is that's changed. I mean, th that has changed. I mean, there has been a, a shift towards sort of the professionalization of harm reduction, um, especially in the last five, six years with uh, like SAMHSA funding for PDO grants, for uh, STR money. These are all like uh, almost all geared towards overdose prevention, naloxone distribution, while still at the federal level, needle exchange cannot be funded. So that's something that we should keep in mind. You said PDO, and I know that's prescription drug overdose. Just breaking down any acronyms. Uh, I, I think STR is a state targeted response grant. Okay. So it's funding from uh, SAMHSA. So SAMHSA Substance Abuse Mental Health Association, or is it? <laughs> I never remember the last two words of SAMHSA Mental Health Services Association. I, I know too, and I don't. Um, and so uh, we saw this money coming through and, and what and now I'm giving you sort of my personal history of harm reduction, but I think it's still aligned with the question. 
what I saw is like people all over the country that were like activists doing harm reduction become executive directors of nonprofits <laughs> and uh, and get this money uh, to do overdose prevention. And it's really great. And I think that harm reduction finds itself right now in this dilemma where like you have to become professionalized like very quickly and are inundated with sort of the administrative gulag of freaking <laughs> billing and uh data collection and and if you're if you're federally funded then you're responsible then you're going to be working with law enforcement in the jails because we have to teach the cops in the prisons how to treat people humanely and and in many ways the vision in my opinion is lost of like really grounding the movement with people who use drugs and grounding the movement in marginalized communities and and starting there and so I think that harm reduction is like at this crossroads or has been at this crossroads for a little bit. And I think the moment we're in right now where we're having national conversations about defunding the police and finally having national conversations about how the police are killing people with mental health issues and actually by us going in and teaching them how to use Narcan is not doing anything. And even when we look, and it's not even evidence-based, when we look at the data, there's so much data that shows the people who reverse overdoses are people who use drugs. Mm -hmm. It's not the cops. So yeah, and I, so I think that like, I wanna leave it there coming to this history where I was, you know, I was inspired by this history. And then I saw this sort of like shift towards through the opioid crisis, which clearly centered, at least in popular media, centered whiteness a lot. And then there's this total national response to it that then sort of like makes us all have to like forget about the logics of capitalism, forget about sort of like structural violence and be like, okay, we got to train the cops now or, you know, oh, we just have to like do integrative health now because that's the best thing to do. So it's interesting. I want to like challenge people going into this field like in a professional level to think about like what does it mean to like have harm reduction hit the main street you know i'll stop there can i just add something about or a little bit more about a state funded harm reduction while i think it is the responsibility of public health in a state any state to provide these kinds of services one of the things that I think is different, like, for example, in New Mexico, about harm reduction versus, for example, the, the progress of HIV treatment organizations is that those organizations have always had some pretty clear, at least early on, some pretty clear client input in, in New Mexico people listen state people listened to the clients around hiv i don't think that's ever happened with the harm reduction contractors that the state has put in place and while they are essential services they aren't necessarily conducive or inspires a contractor to really do some kind community involvement around what the needs are. And so I guess I'm, I'm agreeing with Nathan that it, it needs to be more of a grassroots kind of movement that the state can incorporate in some way in order to make it better. Because when the community gets left out, 
then a bunch of community needs get left out also. And it just becomes, uh, okay, here's a needle, give me a needle, you know, whatever. With the principles and the spirit of the harm reduction program, and I'm sure we'll get into this later about how people are treated. It needs to be something more than just, okay, here's a new syringe for a used syringe. That makes any sense. Yeah, and uh, listeners can't see this, but Nathan and I are nodding emphatically. <laughs> I wanted to ask you both, maybe not so much the history, but just to explain to people, why is there so much backlash? Why don't we have more harm reduction programs? Why, why is it only state funded in a couple of states? And you know, what's going on in the populace? What's the perception of harm reduction and drug use? I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. My initial thought to that is that the general public still considers syringe exchange an enabling kind of process when in fact it is not. It's a public health process that if middle-class people who think the state's using its tax money to give injection drug users new syringes, then it's not that. I mean, if they want to think about it in monetary terms, it is to prevent HIV, to prevent hep C, to prevent emergency room visits for abscesses. And so therefore, if they have to think about it in monetary terms, those are all of the areas where having syringe exchange reduces those costs associated with health problems for people who inject. And I think the general public tends to think that we're simply enabling people. I encountered one person not too long ago who said, well, yes, this is just enabling. Why would you give uh, someone to help them use uh, a substance like this? And I said, okay, if you have an upset stomach, do you go for something that is going to reduce that distress? Yes, of course. And so the same thing is true of people who use another substance. And so it's a distress relief, but it is in a way that needs to be as safe as possible so that, that person does not get sick. So that that individual, for whatever reasons they may be using, is respected and valued as a human being. I don't think that the general public yet gets what the public health consequences are. Just like, to use an analogy, like some people are not getting why we, sh we should be using masks right now all the time when we're out in public, when we're in a group. And so I think that same kind of lack of understanding the underlying causes and understanding how syringe exchange or using masks can benefit us all. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think one of the things I've been thinking about, I mean, that's like kind of a big question. It's like, how do we understand how stigma comes to be? How do we understand like how like marginalized status like comes to be and like, why is there like, sort of a, a collective social perspective on like drug users as inherently dangerous or lazy or unproductive. I knew if anybody was gonna break down abstract and complex concepts, it would be you two. So, <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask. 
<laughs> and it, I mean, it is an abstract and complex sort of like, and I don't, I'm not gonna pretend like I can sort of like totally deconstruct this and like show like why this happens. But I mean, I think there's some like threads to be followed. Like I think the general logics of capitalism like tell us a lot about like how one should be participating in society, uh, which is that they should be productive. Um, and a lot of the times, and, and they not only should they be productive because drug users aren't productive in so many ways, but they should be productive in very particular narrow ways uh, which adhere to sort of the moral qualities of like American exceptionalism, you know, like you need to have a good job, you need to work hard and you need to do it in this specific ways. And in my opinion, drug users subvert that like on a daily basis in a lot of ways. And some don't like there's lots of drug users that use drugs and function within capitalism, like totally normally, but a lot of them don't. And there also is the history of how sort of like drug policy has like unfolded in our country, which is like intrinsically linked to race and intrinsically linked to immigration and sort of like political rhetoric that has like come out of that for over 120 years uh, that has like formed our sort of like social collective idea of like who a drug user is, who's the victim of drug use and who's the perpetrator of drug dependency. And so I think that there's that whole history, that whole sort of like how collective knowledge and popular knowledge comes to be that frames sort of all of our ideas about like who drug users are and what they do. And, uh, and I think that influences sort of like the historical policies that have been created that continue to marginalize people who use drugs. And, I, and Vivian, like the rest is what Vivian said, right? Like, harm reduction is viewed as enabling, we're quote unquote, not addressing getting people quote unquote better through like logics of like individualized disciplining and trying to get people to be more productive. That's in this very specific, narrow, small box. Yeah, instead we're like, what do you need? Like, what do you want? Do you want to stop using drugs? Okay, you don't want to use to stop using drugs? Do you want to learn how to use drugs safer? Okay, let's have that conversation. Let's lead about like what your actual fucking needs are and not like what the state thinks your needs are or what your parents think your needs are, what the larger society thinks your needs are. Like, let's see what's up with you right now. Um, and that's what harm reduction does. And surprise, surprise, it like works. Like, especially when we're looking at sort of long-term health outcomes. I have heard once, we should all look into this more more because I haven't done like this specific research, but I've heard that needle exchange is one of the most rigorously researched public health initiatives ever. And it's shown time and time again that it's evidence-based. It works at reducing hepatitis C and HIV. And then when we look at medication-assisted treatment, which is like another sort of stigmatized, kind of less now uh, form of treatment, we also see popular outcomes. I mean, Medication-assisted treatment is the number one evidence-based approach to substance use disorder. And so, yeah, I think that it's like, and, and all this is always changing, right? Like perspective of needle exchange in the country is so much different than it was 10 years ago. And MAT, oh my God, opioid crisis happens, evidence-based science becomes a little bit more acceptable. And now it's, again, SAMHSA like totally supports it. And so, yeah, so I think that thinking about the historical ways in which sort of like not only just drug use and morality to drug use shapes sort of popular ideas of, of, of drug users, but it's all these sort of auxiliary like sort of uh, histories of imperialism, histories of capitalism, histories of immigration that also inform sort of our popular idea of drug users.
Yeah, and in this country, the whole uh, so-called war on drugs and the politics behind that. So definitely something to uh, look into if you're not familiar with kind of the politics behind the war on drugs and things that were happening around that time. Look into them. They're very interesting. Could you speak a little bit about what harm reduction programs do? Well, I, I, did, I did have the opportunity about four years ago to visit Insight in Vancouver. And it was very interesting. And they still, I believe, to this day, have not had an overdose. And I was so impressed with the fact that there were medical people there. The community was known to all of the people who were working there. Their clients were known. There was, there was one individual who was paraplegic and needed assistance in injecting. And the only thing that one of the, the staff there could not do is actually penetrate the skin. And it was a very, very impressive operation for a safe injection site. And it was quite large. Plus, in terms of medically assisted treatment, if somebody said, okay, you know what? I'm tired of this shit. I want to do something else. They had a five-day inpatient program right there on site to allow a person to make that transition and with medical assistance. And I think safe injection sites are an extremely important part of the next step that we need to take in this country in order to prevent more overdoses and more deaths from overdoses because it also continues to promote all of the safety that people have been told about, have been, but with actual on-site medical assistance and support which is very reassuring. If you or I go to the doctor, you know, we have a doctor, we have a physician's assistant, we have a nurse practitioner who helps us with our medical problem right then and there. And the same should be true for people who inject. On a very basic level, like, okay, so we can break down sort of like what I think the popular idea of like what harm reduction programs do. It's almost always associated with needle exchange or syringe access and overdose prevention and distribution of naloxone. Um, I think that's sort of the most popular sort of perception of a harm reduction program. And so how that looks can look differently depending on the program. Um, so we can think about Espanola, needle exchange, syringe access program, which was historically mostly a, a mobile needle exchange, which drove around northern New Mexico, Rio Riba County, would meet people in different spaces and also go to homes, uh, check in with folks. If they had old syringes, they'd give us the old ones, we would give them new ones. The old school philosophy was one for one. That has sort of fundamentally changed there is research probably 15 years ago that showed that one for one isn't uh, particularly effective for uh, reducing HIV. Um, and so more programs, I mean, I don't, don't even have heard of a program that does one for one anymore. The evidence-based approach is syringe access. You should give people what they need. Um, and some places have different ways of 
doing that and forcing it, asking people to bring old ones back, not asking people to bring old ones back. That all depends on sort of the legality of the program too, right? Because we still today have unsanctioned illegal needle exchanges. Um, and because of that, just like when anything's illegal, you're pushed into the corners, you're pushed in the darkness, you don't have as much resources. It's harder to maybe take old ones back because you don't have the resources to actually properly dispose of them. Yeah, um, I've recently been working with a, a lot of folks who are experiencing homelessness or houselessness at least and, you know, are, are relatively transient and just carrying around hundreds of used needles and stuff is not feasible. So they're, they're not able to exchange, really. A yeah. lot of folks aren't. A lot of sex workers who are also moving around from place to place, nowhere to put them, really. So Yeah, and there's not a lot of access. There's not a lot of, like in Española especially, like I talk to diabetics in Española who go and freaking drive their used diabetic needles to the back of the hospital and throw them in the back of the hospital because the hospital won't take them. No one else will take them. And then, you know, obviously they'll take them at the needle exchange in Española. But like even for anybody trying to dispose of biohazardous waste, it's kind of, it can be really difficult uh, depending on like, yeah, you're like privilege, your access to services, your access to a home, car, anything. And so, yeah, so that's kind of changed. So mostly it's syringe access. And then Narcan, naloxone distribution is kind of a newer, not really new at this point, but like I can kind of remember when it became sort of like a, uh, like a homestay in harm reduction programs. You know, there's this guy from Chicago Recovery Alliance, Dan Big, passed away a couple of years ago, who is one of the main people that helped all these small needle exchanges get really cheap or free access to Narcan to distribute. And now, like, if we look at national data, it's like seriously saved tens of thousands of people's lives every year. But I think that's sort of the foundation of harm reduction, uh, needle exchange or syringe access, overdose prevention, and then like all the injection supplies, uh, ties to tie off so you can see your vein more clearly, cookers to cook and filter your dope with, cottons to filter your dope with. Uh, some places provide crack kits, which is like Brillo, which acts as a filter for cocaine and then a pipe cover. So if you only have one pipe and there's three of you, you can have your own pipe cover and share the pipe. And, you know, in Espanol, we even give out ascorbic acid to break down crack so you can inject it. Um, so all these sort of supplies to help you uh, more easily and more safely use drugs. So I think that's like sort of the foundation. And then depending on the organizations like political ideology or affiliated programming they may be a full like integrative care place where they do primary care so we know casa de salud Albuquerque does primary care it serves a lot of undocumented people they also do like holistic alternative medicine curandera services also like acudetox which is uh, acupuncture for the ears and then there's organizations like Vocal NYC, which does do harm reduction work, does do needle exchange, but they also do a lot of like political organizing. They will do political actions. They'll go to their lawmakers and, and actively like do sit-ins at like the legislative office, um, put on protests. Um, so it's like, it is really across the spectrum. And so maybe just for a second, I'll talk about a couple of things like outside of the US. So, you know, Vivian mentioned Insight, which Canada, at least for, maybe it's just because we're so close to Canada and that's like our lens or whatever. They've been more progressive. I mean, also Vancouver has been hit hard with like fentanyl overdoses and it's showing up clandestinely in like all different types of drugs that you would never expect. Ecstasy, MDMA, fucking cocaine, methamphetamine, everything. And like, 
And what Canada's doing, I mean, they did Insight, which is great, but they've been a lot of activists of lobbying for a safe supply. And so this is like a whole new level, right? This is state-funded access to dope, which I know that in like Europe, there is sort of heroin-assisted treatment, but it's really just functions the same way as medication-assisted treatment is. Advocating for a safe supply would be like a more unregulated, it'd be unregulated and it wouldn't be in the realm of quote unquote addiction treatment. It would be in the same sense as access, you would have access to syringes, clean injection supplies, overdose prevention, and safe and regulated dope. And so that, I don't know, that's like really fascinating. And I think it'll, if it happens, it'll be like a game changer. Cause so like in, injection, clean in, or safe injection sites are starting to take off in the US. There has been underground ones for a while in the US, but I think that Philly and New York were some of the first cities to pass legislation to allow them. I don't know if they're up and running yet. Yeah, Vivian, is there something you wanted to say? No, I think Nathan has done a great job of it. For some reason, I thought I read that there are some safe injection places in New York that they've set up. And I think that that's hopefully going to be a, a huge breakthrough for other parts of the country as, as we progress through this whole process of making harm reduction more a part of our public health initiatives. So that's all. One of the reasons why I wanted to invite these two is because they've got a really great lens from which to view counseling. And I think that there are some ways in which therapy fields and, and the harm reduction movement can collaborate very effectively and, and in ways in which they absolutely don't. <laughs> um, they're not capable of collaborating or where those clashes exist. And so um, I thought I'd mention that my, my final research project for my master's degree was about harm reduction-based counseling methods. And so uh, bringing in uh, alternatives to 12-step, like moderation management, um, there's a lot, actually a lot of education, uh, educational institutions have done a lot of harm reduction measures in just reducing drinking on campus. That's uh, medically assisted treatment programs, suboxone-based programs, methadone-based programs. And um, I remember coming across some data that suggested that folks who were involved in an abstinence-based program were more likely to die of a relapse as opposed to those who were more engaged in some kind of harm reduction or moderation-based um, recovery program. So to me, uh, it makes a lot of sense that we should be exploring the alternatives to abstinence-based programs and counseling services. How about you two, though? I'd love to know what your thoughts are um, when it comes to any uh, effective collaboration between fields of harm reduction and, and therapy. My background and what I was trained in was client-centered therapy, Rogerian therapy. And so the training for people who do harm reduction and for counselors who are working with people um, who are using around what, what we call motivational interviewing, I think is extremely important. Motivational interviewing respects the individual and their choices. As a harm reductionist, as a counselor, coming to the individual with that total unconditional positive regard, I think is extremely important. Allowing the individual to be able to talk 
and not be judged in any way about the choices that they are making. At the same time, when an individual has made even the smallest uh, change that they want to make in their lives around their use, something like, oh, well, um, you know, I'm not injecting as much, I'm smoking more, or whatever, whatever their choices might be, that those kinds of choices are reinforced and that they're also positively reinforced by the person who is the harm reductionist, the counselor, whoever, because our clients have, and, and again, I'm, I'm more familiar with our population here in the North, in Santa Fe and in Española. Their lives have been a series of trauma-based experiences. The history of New Mexico in the North is one of historical violence and trauma and colonization. There's been a long history of violence and poverty in the northern part of the state. And that trauma, it seems to me, has been passed down and is something that's intergenerational that we see in the clients that we serve. And so those kinds of trauma necessarily need to be addressed with the greatest regard for what an individual may have experienced and not in any way minimized uh, by how we approach our clients. My big thing is the poverty that we see all around us in the northern part of the state. And historically, the state really ignored, for example, up until about 2014 and 2015, the state pretty much ignored the fact that people in Rio Arriba County, which is where our clients are, ignored the fact that this small area, this town of 10,000 people, a county of 40,000 people, had the highest rate of overdose deaths in the nation for over 20 years. And my thought about that is that if the state had, if, if the same people who were dying of overdose deaths had been infants and children, um, the state would not have ignored that for all of these years. And so at any rate, going back to the trauma and the connection between trauma and therapy, I think that one has to recognize many forms of trauma that have happened within our client population and has to really be aware of some of the cultural aspects of that trauma when we engage in therapy or engage in motivational interviewing or engage in any kind of syringe exchange with our clients so that there is the possibility, the possibility that they can express, express themselves and seek what they need in their lives. One of the things, uh, also going back to AccuDetox, one of the things that I like about AccuDetox is the fact 
that it's kind of a standalone therapy. In other words, someone doesn't have to be totally verbal about all of the stuff that's happened in their lives and telling their story and explaining what has happened to them. They can participate in an alternative kind of therapy that allows them not to have to do that. If they do it in conjunction with some kind of talk therapy, I think it's, it's wonderful. But again, we have to approach people where they are and try to find ways to provide adequate and very respectful therapy for people where they may be at that particular point. And that can mean, you know, like changing some of the rules, like, do I have to come to counseling and group, you know, counseling once a week and group for three hours once a week? Um, I think that those kinds of rules don't necessarily help the individual. And if the therapy could be tailored more for the individual to allow them to understand themselves, to make the choices that they want to make on an ongoing basis, then the better off we're going to be. That's my thought. Yeah, thank you. I think about this like all the time. And I mean, I went, went to school to be a therapist because I was like, I want to do harm reduction counseling. Like that's like what I want to do. And then like when I went to school, I didn't really know. I mean, I knew harm reduction cause I had been doing needle exchange and you know, I was going to like harm reduction conferences as politically active, like in that sort of realm. And then like transferring it to like the therapeutic relationship was sort of like, uh, it was like interesting to sort of navigate that as, as a graduate student to figure out like what that actually looked like. What I discovered from going to school to be a counselor was that I wasn't satisfied with what I was learning and began to have a real desire to learn theory more. And that was an influence about, uh, from nar- like learning about narrative therapy. That being said, like I think most therapeutic modalities that I've learned, most of them they all have like something that I have found useful for the most part. When they're sort of compartmentalized and used like systematically, sometimes I have a problem with like the way that they actually function. But I think the two modalities I found most interesting that I think are good for people who use drugs and in a harm reduction context is like narrative therapy and some sort of like sort of somatic body-based noticing sensation therapy, if you want to say SE or organic intelligence or generative somatics. These are all like the somatic like uh, modalities I'm, I'm familiar with. Um, and a lot of it is driven by the people that I like met. Like I, a, a very dear friend of mine, former IV drug user, has a heart stent from endocarditis. She's a fucking badass and she's like a trained SE. She's also a trainer. She's been trained and she's a trainer. And she has like she always does all this work about like how to work with people who are using drugs to do SE. That's really exciting. But narrative was the thing that really turned me on to theory. And it was the first modality that I was aware of that really sort of uncovered power relationships and showed not only how so much of our issues, quote unquote, psychologically, psychosomatically, psychologically, pathologically are bound up in our power relationships we have with our families, our our coworkers, um, larger institutions, 
our clinicians themselves, like our own therapists. That was like what I was kind of looking for was this, was this therapy that really kind of centered sort of the unevenness of power in the therapeutic relationship, but then like in all of our daily lives. And I really like narrative for that. And, and like sort of this core of narrative, narrative of questioning. So like narrative is very much about questions, which is different than like Rogerian. Rogerian is really great too, because it's like, you know, you're just like building like a, an empathetic relationship with somebody, you know, like, and I like that. But narrative is really like about, it is sort of this deconstruction. I mean, it's, you know, I, for the theory heads out there, it kind of comes from this Foucauldian post-structuralist ideology um, that really is about sort of like questioning sort of the power structures that we exist in and the way in which power sort of is ubiquitous. And, and like there is this co-authoring in narrative therapy that I think is really great, which sort of does challenge sort of the psychoanalytic, like I'm an analyst expert and you're the patient. So I like that about narrative. And I think it fits really well with harm reduction, especially when we think about sort of the sort of master narratives that exist in the world about like gender, drug use, class, and and, and narrative allows you to, or it encourages you to explore all those sort of like master narratives and hopefully deconstruct them and hopefully like sort of work with clients to reconstruct sort of a narrative for themselves that fits, you know? And, And I always found that like really practical, and also like pretty felt pretty political. And I think some of my work as a as a new grad as a graduate student again in this PhD program, and what is really, we haven't talked about this in the podcast at all, is sort of the moment we're living in. There's two major things happening right now in this moment, right? We have COVID-19, which has just totally exposed care work as such a vital service, right? Like caring for other people is like kind of the most important thing a social group could do. Like it's so vital to our survival. And so like COVID-19 has shows us this, like how important frontline uh, care work is. And so this other moment happening right now too is just this like more unveiling of this mass injustice of anti-blackness in the US. And there is starting to be these sort of sentiments of like how reliance on the police to fix some of our social problems are, is a failure. And so like really what we need is more care workers. We need therapists, we need nurses, we need peer support workers, we need fucking people to do the the care work that keeps us alive and and keeps us thriving. But it's got to be like, so for me, it's all about that care work being critical. And so like, I'm thinking a lot about like abolition care work, like what would that look like? What would it look like for more care worker occupations to become organized and to become unionized? Um, How would they work to like collectively generally strike when organizations try to contract with prisons? So I like think about therapy, but then I like a specific modality, like how you work individually with somebody. And then I also think about like, what does that mean collectively for all care workers? And I know that I've just gone like way beyond like just harm reduction. But harm reduction is like this thing that can ground a lot of this stuff, I think. It really shows us that we don't have to just adhere to like some sort of master narrative about like what actually to become quote unquote better cured is. But it's like about meeting people where they're at. And it's about not doing anything without the voices of those most impacted, you know. And, and we can lead, I hope that like we can lead more, more movements that are grounded in sort of this like care work philosophy. And, and I also want to add, I, I agree 
if I'm understanding what you're saying about the care work philosophy, um, one of the things that's happened in the professionalization of harm reduction is that by placing people who use or who inject in a medical model, it buys in to that whole capitalist system of, I think you would say capitalist system of the medical person, the doctor, the uh, therapist has to buy in to giving a diagnosis, has to buy in to placing somebody somewhere on the spectrum of substance use disorder. The first question that's asked is, you know, how can we build Medicaid for this? Okay. And so my concern is that there does need to be another level of care workers who don't necessarily have to buy into that whole system, that there can be medical and mental health treatment and case management or what, whatever the services are that aren't necessarily what an insurance company tells us to do. I mean, I, I'm not sure that that's making a lot of sense, but that's one of the places where I've been going of, we've got individuals, we've got communities, we've got families, and what do they need in order to be healthy and happy? And so how do we approach that? And I'm not sure that all of our current insurance systems are helpful in making those kinds of things happen. Yeah, I mean, I think that my vision of sort of an abolition care work is like one of the first priorities is universal health care, right? Mm -hmm. Which would eliminate so much of the administrative work related to billing and claim denials and all of those all of those things, right? Like mm -hmm. we, we would have more freedom as workers, as care workers to decide what is actually best for our patients because we don't actually really get to totally decide what's best for our patients because many times our hands are tied by what's uh, reimbursable for Medicaid, mm -hmm. unless you got private pay. And then that creates an uneven topography for who can access that treatment in the first place. Yeah. And even certainly it would be great for the clinicians to have some more freedom to actually provide services that are more helpful to the individuals, you know, receiving the services. But I think that we are all in agreement that, and it is better when this rarely happens, that the recipient of the services, whether they're a client, a patient, whatnot, they're actually setting their own agenda for healing, that they're the ones directing what they mm -hmm. want and from whom and when. Absolutely. Some higher power. Well said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Basic harm reduction, like that's it. Yeah, so we were speaking a little bit about some of the collaborations between therapy and harm reduction, and there are some clashes, and we could probably spend all day going down a rabbit hole of what crappy therapy is, and I'd like to avoid that just because it's boring. Um, but what are some no-nos for therapists working um, with folks who are drug users or who are trying to kick or whatever it is? Or another way to put it might be, what are some clashes between harm reduction and therapy? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, so there are, um, there's plenty. I think that the things that I've been thinking about lately, as you two can imagine, is creating some sort of coercive situation for therapy in itself, 
giving somebody an option of jail versus therapy is a problem and it is not harm reduction at all. And I think another big one is like, I mean, I think that I am really a believer that most, when you have absolute positive regard for your client, you're gonna do okay as a therapist. Um, and also like you're a therapist and you're human and you're gonna do probably some dumb shit too. And so like that's sort of, ex that's excusable on some, on some levels, just as long as it's not like over and over and over again. But I think coerciveness is like a major not cool sort of that's not okay to do. And I think a big one is like really having, like when therapists really have a specific perspective on what they think recovery is for someone and then like demanding that from their client, you know? And so that unfolds in the obvious, like people who think that people need to be abstinent and abstinent is the only way that they're gonna be able to uh, be successful. Um, so, I mean, I think those are just like the two that I'll mention. Yeah, great. No, agreed. Um, kind of the coerciveness, I think, of the system is that, you know, there's kind of the assumption, I think, for many counseling programs and recovery programs that the person is not going to use anymore. That's probably not a realistic assumption in terms of counseling goals that you have to write down or whatever, you know, do a treatment plan. I also think that one of the clashes is, you know, with, with therapy, you have to, you're supposed to do a differential DSM-5 diagnosis and, you know, come up with the label, the label and the assumption that there's going to be some kind of giving up of a substance or giving up of substance use as a counseling outcome. I think those are the two, the two main clashes with harm reduction. So. Yeah, I actually really like that you mentioned that under this assumption that nobody's ever going to use again. And it got me thinking, the assumption is that they're not going to use anything except for caffeine and cigarettes. Those are okay. But um, when I was working in admissions for a recovery center a few years back, oh God, more than a few years back now. But anyway, um, there were, I remember one client in particular who they wouldn't admit to the program because he wouldn't stop smoking medicinal cannabis. He had severe addiction and dependence issues with alcohol. And the only thing that helped him, he had tried to get sober a number of times and when, you know, a few weeks at a time. And um, the only thing that helped him with his DTs and the only thing that really helped him feel like he didn't have the severe cravings for alcohol was to smoke marijuana. He just refused to give that up. And it wasn't, I think he was applying to be in the IOP program. So probably could have gotten away with it, but he was just like, no, like if I can't be honest, like I'm supposed to, this is supposed to be this huge turning point in my life. And like, if I can't be honest about what I'm doing and why, like this is not going to work for me. And I just think that's such a bummer that he mm -hmm. couldn't get into this program that was ideal in all the other ways for him. Yeah, just one more aspect of harm reduction that I think is important, that there are some substances that work better for some people than others, and he was one of them. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. My early experiences with like IOP and inpatient and 12-step recovery, because like I did all of that stuff, was that there was just so much hard line about that, which was like, for me, like totally alienating and like made treatment an utter failure for me because like there was no actual therapeutic thing going on. Like there was no like, yo, like let's actually see what's going on with you and like work with you where you're at. 
Instead, it was like, here's the rules and the guidelines and here's some psychoeducation. Like, that's how it felt. And it's funny, I really think that the way up in Española, the reason that our MAT program, I mean, it is really evidence-based too, but I think that our MAT program tends to be lenient around the like polysubstance use or experiences with other drugs and stuff like that is because our community that we work with is like, they're not going to do it any other way. They're going to like do it how they are going to do it. And if they want to bill Medicaid, they need to fucking work around it. <laughs> like we can't do this any other way because the community's like, nah, if you're not going to help me the way I need to be helped, like I'm leaving. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I think that's a good thing, a good way to like think about it. Remember that it's really coming from like the actual social relations and material conditions of the people who are using drugs. It's not going to work if we like punish people to drug test them. And it's that, and it's the judge too. Like whatever, you know, I say things, snarky comments about the judge or whatever, but the reality is, is he gets it. Like people are going to get fucking high. And so if you want to help them, you need to work with them. So yeah, I just wanted to say that. Yeah. One more thought I had about the clashes in the field. Uh, Vivian, you mentioned something earlier, and I'll, I'm going to use that example in, at Insight in uh, Canada and Vancouver. Yeah. They actually have a detox or um, slash recovery program on site. And so um, I think that just brings up some complex issues. Like, do folks feel that they can still go to the exchange if there's a recovery program on site? Um, and what are we doing to break down any barriers that might be there? You know, do they really need to be at the same location? Is that helpful for the recipients of our services or is it not? Is it a deterrent? So just considering those things, I think is mm -hmm. important. That's a good thought. What we were talking about earlier is that when people are making a choice about making a change, if there's something there and immediate that they can access, that it might be easier for them to engage in making that change. And my thought about the two being in the same location, I think you have a valid point, but my other thought is that if someone says, you know, I really, I really need to make this change and I, I really want to make it now before I change my mind and all of this, that there is some immediate service. There's some immediate action that can be taken to help them in making that change. So that's all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is interesting because I think that part of me wants to be like, oh, I would love to live in sort of like this world where people can feel totally not afraid of being stigmatized, showing up to do needle exchange or go to a safe injection site and just know that there's this option that exists and that there's no sort of like larger ideology of stigma that affects them. And I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not an expert on like sort of how things work in Canada. I think there's some different things that we have to consider is like Vancouver is like the largest city in Canada. I think it's like actually like per capita as large as New York City, which is contrasted to Española, which is like, it's like 5,000 people live in that town, you know? So I, I do think that there's almost a bigger conflict of interest when you have a small ass town with drug court and a needle exchange compared to like Vancouver, more socialized medicine is a huge city and has these two sort of services that could be conflicting. So I think we have to consider like the geography and the politics and all that. And to assume that like people can get, like we can live in a world where like people can feel unstigmatized going to a place that also provides treatment. I just, I don't know if we're there. And I don't think we are depending on the situation or the place.
Yeah, I don't think we are either. Um, the last question I want to ask is, uh, what are your concerns and hopes for the future of this movement? My concerns are that people who use, people who inject, are going to continue to be stigmatized by the Western medical system. That whole thing around a diagnosis and then having to go through a program if they want to get some help, that whole, in a sense, the professionalization, if that's what it's being called now, of harm reduction, as opposed to a community program whereby people's needs and cultural considerations around their lives are really respected and that we don't buy into doing a whole medical model of substance use and, and health. There's a huge difference between, say for example, the upper middle class person with back problems who may be getting opioids uh, on a consistent basis and may be dependent on them and with someone who may not have the insurance or the ability to continue on prescribed opioids and who uses heroin. So um, I guess I'm concerned about the professionalization of the program. The other thing that also concerns me, at least in this state and for our clients, is that we need to have some outcome goals around overdose deaths and the reduction of overdose deaths. We need to have some good surveillance and some good epidemiological data around hep C because that's a huge problem with our clients. And so I think we need to have some outcome goals for harm reduction programs in those areas. We can say, okay, well, we served X number, we served 2,000 individual people in Rio Arriba County, and uh, we had, you know, 734 overdose reverses, but those are, those are process numbers. I would like to see harm reduction programs actually look at any difference they may be making in terms of overall outcomes in health for our clients. I think that's important. Nobody's going to condemn a harm reduction program because there are two more overdose deaths this year than there were last year, but we do need to look at that. And it's one of the reasons that we need community involvement in the harm reduction programs so that those health outcomes can be considered in a very realistic way that actually impact the lives of our clients. That makes so much sense too. Like I never actually really thought about how, cause I hear you talk Vivian regularly about actually having like tangible outcome goals, which isn't, most programs don't do that. I mean, maybe they internally do, but it's definitely not part of any sort of mandated like data reporting to like fulfill the contract, you know? It's all about like amount of contact and doses given out, syringes distributed and all of that especially if we think about Rio Reba County, we've had like, we've hovered around this 30 number, right? For years, we've had between 28 and 34 deaths every year for years. And it's like, okay, so like, what do we do different? Because we do the same thing. We've been doing the same thing, which is like getting Narcan into the community, teaching people how to use it, 
But like there, as we all know, there's nuances to overdose. And like, how else would we actually know what those things are without actually like having a formal way of like including those people, obviously in decision making, but also in like doing like focus groups, doing uh, qualitative surveys with them. You know, I come in and do this UNM research study that is like, it's great for this on, on a national level, but does little actually for Rio Rio County, you know? It's so cool, actually, to think about, like, new ways to think about outcomes and how we can't do that without, like, the voices of the community. I mean, it seems so simple, but we're not, like, doing it. <laughs> I'm pretty simple-minded. <laughs> yeah, what about other hopes and concerns for the future? So I think for me, I mean, my concern has always been sort of the same is that harm reduction has become out of touch with uh, some of its historical roots. And I would love to see that sort of revitalized. And like, and so I think that a lot of times this debate exists that it's like state funded programs or professional programs can't do that. So it has to be like this activist-based volunteer thing. I think that's a false binary. I think that there should be a way where organizations can be professional and have real outcomes and have good like clinical sensibility and also be activists and also be anti-capitalists. Also like embrace their roots of direct action. Like I don't think those things are two different things. Um, They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive, although the sort of nonprofit industrial complex presents this concept of like professionalization that does make seem mutually exclusive. I don't think they are. I mean, there's barriers that we've been talking about this whole time, right? Like, you know, we have to adhere to like Medicaid billing and all that stuff, but there's still a core, there's still core ethics and perspectives that could be had that go beyond just a clinical practice that can embrace sort of political action. And some do, but most don't. So I would love to see, my hopes to see more harm reduction organizations become radicalized, especially in this moment. And my concerns are that people get distracted by the romance of capital. And I kind of get why they do because nonprofit work is like, well, like compared to like other for-profit businesses, the labor is undervalued technically, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so that's the other thing is that we reevaluate, like, what our labor's worth as care workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're probably the three most underpaid <laughs> folks with master's degrees. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. My awareness for the most part, yeah. What other profession requires that you get a 60 credit hour master's to go into a job force that pays, for some people, $37,000 a year? Oh, yeah. I was actually uh, functioning as a therapist for over a year at $32,000 a year. Yeah. So, I mean, care work is super, the labor is super undervalued. That's a hope of mine, I guess, is that we reevaluate the worth of care work. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, just some final thoughts. Uh, Is there anything else that you would just like to share? Um, To reveal my age even more... Ted Kennedy said to the 1980 Democratic National Convention in his final speech to it, the work goes on, the dream continues, the hope continues, the dream goes on, and the hope shall never die. And I guess, I know that sounds very maybe flowery or idealistic, but we just need to make sure that the work goes on, that we don't lose hope, and that we don't lose our dreams.
Well said. Well said. I just want to thank you for having me on. I sometimes forget how much I love talking about this stuff. So I hope that we all have an opportunity to do it again. Me too. Great, yeah. Do a version 2.0, see where we're all at in a couple of years. Yeah, thank you both so much. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for listening to Talk Therapy. The podcast is hosted and produced by me, Amy Gordon. For more information about the show, check out my Instagram, amygordon1985. Special thanks to Kabbalistic Village for the use of his incredible music for this podcast. To continue to support the podcast and promote mental health awareness, please subscribe to Talk Therapy on your favorite listening platform. I hope you enjoyed the show. Take care, y'all.